0: So the title of part one today is this. Part one, invest in people. Invest in people for your notes. If you have been in America very long, when you hear the word invest, the first thing you think about is 401k, retirement, stock market, um, um, real estate, things like that. There's nothing wrong with investing in those things. That's actually biblical to do that, to have a retirement. However... Those investments will not last past your life on earth. Those investments will one day burn up. Those investments will not get you to hear the words from Jesus, Well done, my good and faithful servant. The only investments that last past your life, the only investments that last for all of eternity, are investments made in the lives of people. It says in Ecclesiastes 11.2, invest what you have in others and you will make a profit. The reason this scripture is difficult to grasp and to apply and you think it's not that difficult. It's easy. I just read it. No big deal. It's very difficult. And here's why. Very difficult. Because everything in this world since you've been born has said the opposite. Everything you go to college for, you study business, you study math, all of these things all around the world tell you this, invest what you have in yourself and you'll be happy. Invest what you have in your four and no more, and your kids will succeed. Invest what you have in your dreams coming true, and then one day you'll be fulfilled at the end of your life. Nope, that's not God's plan. God's plan is the opposite. He says, when you invest what you have in other people, then God will make sure that a prophet comes to you. He'll make sure there's somebody to help your dreams come true after you invest in somebody else's dreams. Uh, There are people in this room that hold the key to your destiny. They hold the key to you being fulfilled at the end of your life. And I can prove to you biblically it starts with your local church. All through the New Testament I can prove that to you. These people around you right now hold the key to how you're going to feel when you're on your deathbed. These people in this room hold the key to whether or not Jesus is going to look at you and say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. These people, they're not here to encourage you. They're not here to pray for you. They're not here to make your life better. It's the opposite. These are people God's put in your path for you to pour into them. So then somebody can come along and help you make your dreams come true and help bring the fulfillment into your life. It all starts with a seed. I have a, um, a pile of dirt in my front yard where there's supposed to be grass. It's very embarrassing because I love good landscape. And, and by the way, Brian does phenomenal. If you all look at our landscape, he worked really, really hard out there this week, but my neighbors have good grass. I got this pile of dirt. So being the man of faith that I am, I did not walk out there in front of that pile of dirt and say, Lord, please help grass grow. I didn't go out there and sing and praise God. Lord, help the grass grow. Lord, help the grass. grow. No, I didn't do that. Here's what I did. I went to Lowe's and I bought some seed and I put some seed in the ground. Then after I put the seed in the ground, then I prayed, God, I've done my part. Now it's time for you to do your part time for you to make, bring down the water. It's time for you to cause the, the seed to turn into grass and cause it to grow. Here's what I'm trying to say. A lot of you are so ingrown and only focused on yourself, and you wonder why nothing's happening in your life. You wonder why things aren't changing. Here's why you have no seed in the ground. You can pray all day long for God to fix your problem and your discouragement and your loneliness and what you're going through, but nothing's going to change till you get some seed into the ground. You have to sow a seed if you want God to meet your need. And the seed can't be sown for your own life. It has to be sown into someone else's life. Here's why. God cares more about people than He does anything else in the universe. There's nothing God cares about more than people. The people you do like, the people you don't like. The people that have been good to you, the people that have been bad to you. God cares more about people than anything else in the entire galaxy. Anything else. And here's what's even beautiful about this. Um, the thing that God called to disciple the thing he loves the most was not the mountains and all of their majesty. It was not the sun and its brilliance and power. It was not the solar system and all of its beauty and wonder. All of those things are amazing, but God did not ask those things to speak into the lives of people and disciple them and draw them closer to Himself. He called the thing He loved the most to disciple the thing that He loved the most. He called people to disciple people. He didn't even ask His angels to do it. As powerful and warring as they are, he did not tell his angels, angels, I want you to speak into the lives of people and disciple them and draw them closer to me. No, God chose people like you and me to disciple people like you and me. He chose people that were imperfect, that had issues, but that loved him and knew how to walk with him to train and to disciple people to love him and to learn how to walk with him. God chose me and you to invest in people like me and you. Listen, you invest in money, you win, you lose. You invest in people, you win every single time. Whenever you're on your deathbed, or let me say this, at your funeral... Do you want people to come up to the microphone and say, she was a nice person, he was a great guy, they had an awesome talent. Or do you want people to come up to the microphone and say this, because of this person, my life was forever changed. Because of this person, I learned how to walk with Jesus. Because of this person, my family got saved. Because of this person, I know how to get through the most difficult times of my life. This person walked with me for one year. And show me what it was like to be a true disciple of Jesus. If I gave you one person, and this, remember this is for the people that were in that meeting. If I gave you one person every year for the rest of your life... For you to pour into just one person a year, imagine the, the 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 productivity that would take place in the kingdom of God. Imagine, see, right now y'all are spread thin. You got 50 people you're ministering to here and there, and work, and trying to be nice and answer the phone for this person. Think about how much more productive it would be if you poured into one person. What I'm telling you takes five to seven minutes a week for the rest of your life. One person, know how, I'm, I'm going to teach you what scriptures to send them when they're going through something. I'm going to teach you how to pray for people. I'm going to teach you how to, how, to, um, how to say no to certain things and yes to certain things and have a balance to your life. I want to teach you how to disciple other people. Um, There's a true story about this mountain climber. He was uh, with a group of guys on their way up the most difficult mountain in the world to climb. And they were six hours into the journey. And all of a sudden, they came across this huge blizzard. I mean, it was so bad they couldn't even hardly communicate. They were having to communicate with hand signals. And it got so bad the leader of the group said, We got to turn around and go back down the mountain. So they were on their way back down another six hour journey. And they came across this guy who was uh, hurled in like a fetal position on the side of the trail. He wasn't moving. He was barely alive, and he was freezing to death. One of the guys from the first group kind of signaled and said, let's get down there and help him. And the guy that was in charge said, no, 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 you can't do that. I'm not responsible for him. I'm responsible for y'all. We have to get down the mountain. If you stay here and help him, both of you will die. You'll both lose your life. This guy wouldn't take no for an answer. He told the group to go ahead. He stayed there with this other fellow. He got down on the ground, his hands and knees, and he began to massage this guy on the side of the mountain, all over his legs, his arms, he patted his chest, patted his face. This went on for 15 minutes. Finally, the guy that was hurled up there in the the freezing position, finally he started to wake up. He revived, he got up, and together they both went all the way down the mountain. When they got to the bottom of the mountain, there was a medic team waiting there for the guy that was, you know, freezing to death, and they examined him and took him to the hospital. And then the doctor ran over to the other guy. The other guy said, no, no, I'm fine. Everything's good. They took off his gloves and his boots, and they discovered that he was in the early stages of frostbite. After the doctor examined him, he said something so interesting. He said, because you got down there on your hands and knees and massaged this other guy, you actually caused your blood to circulate the way it should, and you actually saved your own life by helping him. The same thing is true spiritually. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 1.4 says, God brings us alongside somebody who's going through hard times so we can be there for that person just like God was there for us. What I'm telling you, this area of ministry, and if you weren't invited to that meeting, we're having another one. Uh, The first Sunday of March after the second service. If you've been walking with Jesus for several years, if you're an active member of Solid Rock, we want you to be someone who disciples somebody else. If not, we want to disciple you. We want to disciple you. We want to bring you to the place where you can confidently and boldly say, I'm going to heaven. I'm walking with Jesus. And I know what it's like to get through the trials of life. Job spent 41 chapters focused on his own problems. He lost his family. He lost his business. He lost his health. It was all about me, 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 me. And nothing was changing. For 41 chapters, nothing changed. Finally, the last chapter of the book of Job, Job 42.10, it says God turned everything around for him when he prayed for his friends. Now, here's what I want you to see by the story. Job needed prayer for himself more than his friends did. Job's problems were worse than his friends were. Job's issues were more difficult, bigger, scarier, nastier than the people he prayed for. But Job also finally realized I got to get some seed in the ground. I got to do something for somebody else. I got to help somebody else get closer to Jesus. So then my problems will change. Um, a great miracle occurred in our church last week. Great miracle. One of our church members, Tanya, she's in Texas today. But uh, Tanya's a, a, a member of our church. She usually sits at the very back of church. I can't remember which service, I think this one. But she's a motorcycle mama. I mean, she's got tattoos all over. She rides motorcycles, that's her thing. Um, she's, uh, I think that she's Hispanic. She has some kind of a Hispanic um, descent. She's, she's bilingual. And um, she came to us unsaved. She started coming to church. It took years for her to finally get to the point where she surrendered to Jesus, years for her to join the church and to start being part of a group, and then finally talking to people was a big thing for her because she was extremely shy and still is extremely shy, very shy. Well, she's gotten to the point where some of the ladies in this church have discipled her and they've helped her grow and they've helped her get through difficult times, so much so... That when she got in her motorcycle accident a few months ago, she came this close to losing her life, this close. It was a miracle she survived, miracle. When she was laid up in bed, not able to go to work, not able to come to church, instead of feeling sorry for herself and talking about how bad her problems were, she started reading the Bible even more and more and more and more. Started coming back to church when she was able to. She has the neck brace and everything. And last week, long story short, a text from a friend of a friend. There was a family, a Mexican family here in town. And uh, the son, his name was Victor. He's 23 years old. And he was working on the machine here in town. And uh, long story short, something happened and the machine crushed his body. I mean, they crushed his intestines. His, um, I got it written down, thing, his liver, his stomach. I mean, it just crushed him. They had to amputate a leg. They're still at the hospital holding on for dear life. But the friend texted me and said, is there anybody in your church because there was no interpreters at the hospital. So you got a family that only speaks Spanish, no one there speaking Spanish. They're scared to death, their son's on, on death row, they don't know what to do. They said, Is there anybody from your church who could come and just pray with this family that speaks Spanish? I got just the person. We contacted Tanya. Of course, Ron and Trisha went. Tanya gets there. And let me tell you, Tanya prays with the family. She cries with the family. She hugs the family. She comes back. She spends time with them. Juan even comes up there and talks to them. She interprets for the family. Do you know how good it felt as a pastor to see this person that wasn't even serving God? Now they're at the point where they'll leave what they're doing and go to the hospital to pray for somebody else who's in need? Do you know what that feels like? We should be so excited for her. Proverbs 21.7 says you destroy yourself by refusing to help others. Some of you all you are destroying yourself on a daily basis because it's all you think about is you, you're for, and no more. That's all you think about. What I'm telling you, this area of ministry, is more enjoyable, more effective, and more efficient than anything else you've ever done. It's easier than what you're doing now. It's easier. To take five to seven minutes a week and pour into just one person for one year. You know, I love to give points up here in the, on the board for y'all to write down and, and tweet or twat or whatever you do. I don't know what y'all do with those things. But anyway, so I'm going to read you three different points, okay? There's three points. The first one and the second one, they mean the same thing. Okay? Ready? Here it is. If you're on the mountain to, I don't know how the phrases go. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Google, I don't know what they'd say. Anyway... I get confused up here. Ready? We're going to edit out the whole sermon, so y'all just... Is there a red light on my face somewhere? Okay. Be serious. Ready? We're in church. Twit? I don't know. If you're on the mountaintop alone, y'all better take notes right now. If you're on the mountaintop alone, you don't deserve to be there at all. Let me say it a different way. Ready? If you're, on the, <laughs> if you're on the mountaintop alone, you're probably very lonely. Okay, let me say the third way. If you're on the mountaintop alone, nobody's going to miss you whenever you're gone. You have to realize this. See, we, we love to climb the mountain by ourselves. We love to make sure our dreams come true. Uh, God does the things we, we want to do in our life. It's going to happen for us. The doors are going to open for us. But if you're up there all by yourself, you don't deserve to be there. If you're up there all by yourself, you're probably a very lonely person. And if you're up there by yourself, nobody's going to miss you whenever you're gone. Very, very important. You know, Paul the Apostle wrote over half the New Testament. And he would have never been able to fulfill his destiny had it not been for somebody else that took Paul under their wing. Uh, When Paul got saved, before that he was murdering Christians and doing all the wrong things. But when he turned his life over for Jesus, he didn't just want to get saved and go to heaven. He actually wanted to be discipled. He wanted to learn. He wanted to grow. So in Acts 9.26, Paul went to Jerusalem to join the other disciples. But they didn't believe him and they were all afraid. Thank God for Barnabas in verse 27. It says, then Barnabas took Paul under his wing and explained to everybody how the Lord changed him. Here's what I want you to see. When you get to heaven, you'll say, Paul, you were amazing. The things you wrote were awesome. All because of you, there were New Testament churches. Paul, billions have learned from your writings. And how did you do it? And Paul's going to point over in the corner to a man named Barnabas who simply discipled him and trained him and spent time with him. Every life that Paul changed, Barnabas got a reward for it. Let me tell you a story I hope you never forget. In 1855, there was a shoe shop assistant named Ed Kimball. Ed Kimball, he worked at the shoe shop, but his passion was to pour into teenagers and to uh, disciple teenagers. He taught Sunday school to teenagers. They'd come to his shoe shop and talk about the gospels and things of that nature. Through his ministry of discipling teenagers and mentoring them, a young teenager named D.L. Moody gave his heart to Jesus. D.L. Moody became an evangelist and he grew up and at one of his evangelistic crusades, a young man by the name of J.W. Chapman came to know the Lord. J.W. Chapman had a passion for um, athletes and sports and so he would go to different major league baseball teams and minister to them and pray with them and talk to them about Jesus. One day as he was talking about the Lord, J.W. Chapman uh, led a, a baseball player named Billy Sunday to Christ. Billy Sunday found out about Jesus. He started going to church, and he got saved and became a believer, a disciple. And he used his finances that he had in his, in his popularity as an athlete to finance different revivals around the South. One of the revivals he financed was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he invited a speaker named Mordecai Ham to come and preach. Mordecai Ham preached a good sermon. At the end of it, he gave an altar call. And a young teenager named Billy Graham came down and gave his heart to the Lord. Because of Billy Graham, there's over five million people are going to be in heaven. Over five million people, over five million people are going to be in heaven because one shoe shop assistant in 1855 had a heart to mentor and disciple and help teenagers. Here's the point: we're not all called to minister to millions, but we are all called to disciple at least one, and that one could be the one where, let's say 1855, we 160-something, 170 years from now. Five million people are in heaven because you took on one person to draw them closer to Jesus. Deuteronomy 3.28 says, God told Moses, encourage Joshua, for he shall cause the people to occupy the land. Um, Two million people made it into the promised land, and they thought it was because of Joshua and his leadership and the fact that he led them and he was courageous and he was brave. Um, Two million people made in the promised land, not necessarily because of Joshua's leadership skills, but because Moses spent year after year after year with Joshua, training him and helping him become the man that God called him to be. What if Moses was self-centered? What if Moses was only focused on his own dream? What if Moses was only focused on his own ministry, his own family? Then those two million would have never made it into the promised land. The best legacy is not what we leave for people. The best legacy is what we leave in people. It's not what we leave for people. It's what we leave in people. There's a true story that always blesses my heart about this uh, 10-year-old boy named Shea. Um, Shay was uh, mentally and physically challenged. And he and his dad would go for a walk in the neighborhood after dinner every night. And they'd always pass by this baseball field. Sometimes there'd be kids playing, you know, in the neighborhood. And Shay loved baseball. It was his favorite sport to watch. He collected baseball cards, he always carried his baseball around, but he was never able to play because of his handicaps. This one particular night, they were walking around the neighborhood, and they could hear the roar of the crowd before they even got there. They got to the field, and there were two teams playing. It wasn't a a ref game, it was just a neighborhood game, but there were all these kids all over the place. There were parents walking by, there was a park nearby where people were watching it take place, and Shay asked his dad, he said, hey dad, do you think that they'll let me play baseball with them today? And his dad knew that Shay couldn't play baseball, so he said, well, son, maybe one day they'll let you. Shea said, no, do you think they'll let me play tonight, like right now? His dad said, well, son, they're already in the middle of a game. Maybe we'll just wait and try some other time. His dad said, please, 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 please ask them if I can play baseball with them today. So out of sheer desperation, the father walks over to the dugout, and he asked the group of boys kind of whisperingly so they wouldn't make a big scene. He said, uh, would you mind if my son Shay played with you guys a little bit? And the boys looked behind the father and they saw Shay. They immediately knew there was something different about him. They said, "Nah, we don't want him to play with us. We only got two innings left. The game's almost over. We don't need anybody else. The dad turned around and hung his head trying to think of a way to explain to Shay that they said no. When all of a sudden, one of the boys from the dugout screamed out, hey, man, we'll let your kid play. Like I said, the game's almost over, but he can come and be a part. Man, Shay was so excited, so excited. He'd gotten there in the dugout, and he was sitting next to the other boys his age. It was the best day of his life. Finally, towards the end of the game, Shay's team was down by one run. They already had two outs, and it was Shay's turn to bat. First time ever he was going to pick up a baseball bat and actually swing it at a game. All the kids wanted to put in a pinch hitter, every one of them. But knowing that they were going to lose the game because of this, Knowing they were not going to win because of this decision, they allowed Shea to go and take a swing. Shea gets up there behind home plate and the pitcher fires that first ball and Shea swung three seconds too late. He was a mile away from the ball. The pitcher could tell there was something different about Shea, so this time he threw it a little bit slower just to give him a chance. Once again, Shea swung and missed the ball about a mile. This time the pitcher decided to take about eight or nine steps forward And as slow as he possibly could, underhanded, he threw the ball straight to Shea, right over the home plate. Shea swung as hard as he could, and would you believe the bat made the ball perfectly. I mean, you could hear the crack. It was perfect. Shea took off running. Unfortunately, though, the hardest that Shea could hit caused the ball to go about 10 feet in front of him. The pitcher grabbed the ball out of instinct. He was ready to throw it to the first baseman to win the game for their team. And out the corner of his eye, he saw Shea running the best he knew how to run. So instead of throwing it to the first baseman, right to his glove, he threw it far over the first baseman's head where he'd have to miss the ball. Shea rounded first base, and his dad is screaming at the top of his lungs, Go, Shay, go! By this time, the other kids knew what was up. So, all the kids on the opposing team began to take the ball and throw it over each other's heads so nobody could get Shay out. Now, Shay's rounding third base on his way home. By this time, all the people watching and both teams, Shay's team and the opposing team, are all screaming at the top of their lungs Go, Shay, go! Go, Shay, go! When Shay came in with the winning run. That caused his team to win the game. That day those kids deposited something into Shea that he'll never ever forget for the rest of his life. When he's 80 years old he'll still be telling the story of how 70 years before I came in with the game winning run. The point I want to make is this. Sometimes we have to lose so that somebody else can win. Sometimes we have to lose some energy that we were going to put into our own dream so that we can help somebody else's dream come to pass. Sometimes we have to lose time that we were going to spend on ourselves to help somebody else. Sometimes we're going to have to lose a little bit of money if it means maybe buying somebody else a Bible, getting them a new outfit, something that ministers to them. Man, I'm not asking for much from y'all today. I'm asking for those of you that are already disciples of Jesus to be willing to disciple one to three people every year for the rest of your life. Imagine what it would do for the kingdom of God. Last story, and I'm done. And there's these two guys in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah, their, their names just happen to be similar. It's just a coincidence. But Elijah asked Elisha one day, Can I mentor you? Can I train you? Can I disciple you? And Elisha agreed. Elisha went and helped him and, and they, they served one another. And Elisha spent years helping Elijah's ministry grow, did all he could for him. At the end of Elijah's life, in 2 Kings 2 9, he said, What can I do for you? And Elisha said, I want a double portion of your spirit. And this is very, very important. He was a farm boy who was probably just thought, man, one day I want to own my own farm. And now after being years of being discipled and trained, now his vision is so big, he doesn't just want what Elisha had. He wanted double. Double the prosperity, double the peace, double the joy, double the anointing. And he got it. God promised him, yes, I'm going to give you double. For all these years you poured into this person, I'm going to give you double. So now Elisha is now an old man, and now he's on his deathbed. And if you study the scripture, you find that Elijah has seven major miracles recorded under his name. Seven major miracles. Elisha was promised a double portion because he poured into someone else's life, because he helped somebody else's dreams come true. God promised him, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you double. Now, double of seven is what? Fourteen. None of y'all went to schools around here. Good job. It's double of seven is 14. i I'm just kidding. That's a total joke. Seven is Fourteen. Elisha's on his deathbed and he only has 13 miracles recorded. Only 13. But see, I told you from the very beginning of this sermon when you invest in others, God will make sure you get a profit and your dreams will come true. So the only way this sermon could be complete if there was 14 miracles. However, Elisha dies with just 13 miracles recorded under his name. Now listen, 13 is better than 7. It's not 14, it's not total fulfillment, it's not what God promised, but it's better than 7. I can picture Elisha's grave, that the gravestone said something like, you know, one miracle shy from a true promise. Or uh, just one more miracle and I would have been fulfilled. Or God said double, but he didn't quite make it. I made it to 13. 14 would have been great, 13's Okay. Here, Elisha's been dead for over a year now. Only 13 miracles. God promised double, but so far it's only 13. They put his body in an open grave where they don't fill it up. They just dig a hole, throw the body in there. A year later, the only thing left inside that pit is Elisha's bones. That's it. That's all that's there. There was a war going on, a battle taking place near that area a year later, and these three guys were together, and one of them got killed. So they took their friend's body, and they didn't have time to have a proper burial. So they took their friend's body, and they threw their friend's dead corpse into this open pit where Elisha's bones were. And the Bible says in 2 Kings 13, 21, they quickly threw the dead man into Elisha's grave. But when the corpse touched the bones of Elisha, the man came alive and walked right out the grave. There it was, miracle Number 14. Can you picture, picture three guys from Conway? You know, Bubba, Johnny, and Bubba. And someone shoots Bubba. And so they throw Bubba in. they like, oh, poor guy. Nothing we can do for him. They throw him in. They turn around and walk away. And then Bubba says, hey, where you all going? All of a sudden, up. They ran as fast as they could out of there. The point is this. is When you invest into people, not even death, can cause God to have an unfulfilled promise in your life. Not even death can stop God from doing what He said He would do.